This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 67, Comic Reviews for the week of April the 3rd. Welcome once again to Comic Shenanigans. This is episode 67. We're looking at comic reviews for the week of April the 3rd. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and thanks once again for joining us. Um, actually, relatively small week uh, this past week. Uh, we've had a bunch of weeks where it seemed like there was just like at least uh, 35 to 40 books coming out, and I was reading maybe 20 to 25 of them. This one, this week, I think I read a little bit less than 20. To be honest, there was just some books I could not find the uh, the wherewithal to even get through them. They just weren't that all that interesting. So, as always, I list off at the end of the episode all the, all the issues that did come out last week that I didn't end up reviewing. Uh, so, um, just in case, because I know some people have said before that they appreciate that because, you know, you think, oh, well, if you didn't review it, maybe it didn't come out. No, it may have just be that I do not care about that particular book, which unfortunately does happen. Uh, first up on the alphabetical list is Action Comics number 19, uh, this is the first non-Grant Morrison issue of Action Comics. Uh, this is actually kind of notable because we have Andy Diggle coming on the book, which is a big deal because it's you know it's a it's a new team for Action Comics and it's not Grant Morrison. You have Tony S. Daniel doing the artwork, and yet Andy Diggle has already left the book uh, before this issue even came out. He'd already. I resigned from the book over creative differences with editorial, etc. And Tony Daniel has said that he is actually not the regular ongoing penciler. He is just doing this arc and then he's leaving. So everyone was kind of expecting that it was going to be one thing and we're not really getting that at all. Uh, Tony S. Daniel will be doing, uh, adapting the plots from, uh, what's his name, from uh, Andy Diggle and uh, writing the last couple issues, I guess, of the arc. the artwork by Daniel is not nearly as sharp or as smooth as his art usually is. Uh, the storyline, we see a little bit of, of Luther, which is involved, but it, it felt very much in some ways like um, Superman felt when it first started uh, back during the New 52, where it was just random villain, things happen, and obviously here it does feel like it's a little bit something else because you have the idea that uh, Lex Luthor has planted something basically inside of... Uh, Superman, and he's basically already killed him, he just doesn't know it yet. This isn't new, this isn't something that hasn't ever been done before, but it's kind of the first time in the New 52 that they've uh, approached this and actually used Luther as more of the Luther that fans of comics know, and not just the one where Grant Morrison was using. It's still not clear exactly where this takes place. I, I believe this takes place a year ago, so that kind of bugs me too, because... You know, we finally are done with Grant Morrison. Let's jump to the future, or so not in the future, the present, and we can't get that. We're still stuck in the, you know, uh, a few years ago, or in this case, just one year ago. So we're still not in the kind of the entry point where the New 52 started, which I find frustrating. Plus, the cover is uh, part of the originally the uh, the branded name for the, all the April covers of DC was uh, WTF month, which a lot of people didn't like, and they didn't like that they were actually going to call that. They were actually going to have an, a WTF logo on every book, and a lot of people were really upset about that because of what it stands for and what it means. So they are still kind of doing the, all these gatefold covers, but they're just not branding it that way. This one, very throwaway, was Superman punching someone, and it's, oh no, it's Jimmy Olsen, but it's not. And even in the story, there's no real explanation given for why he out of nowhere hallucinates and thinks he sees Jimmy Olsen as one of his enemies instead of someone else. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, Again, not the most original concept, but it did feel like it was a little bit more back to basics instead of 
what we kind of got before uh, under Grant Morrison. I still gave it maybe a seven, seven and a half. I was originally thinking more of an eight, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought it didn't quite deserve an eight, uh, which at times can be one of my favorite ratings. Um, next up is Age of Apocalypse 14. Uh, now, this is part of the Extermination storyline. I'm not a huge fan. I, I think I said it in the podcast before. The first issue is fantastic. That's uh, why it's called Extermination, yeah. Uh, the first issue was really good. Then it weird it went in the veered off in a weird territory at the end. And then the, the second part, I didn't find all that great. And then uh, this issue does not even feel like an Age of Apocalypse issue, which is interesting because I think in some ways uh, Astonishing X-Men's chapter felt more like an Age of Apocalypse book in terms of it was on that locale, whereas here... You had elements, and you had the idea of the, uh, you know, the uh, the apocalypse seed, but it didn't it didn't quite jive. Uh, the story here is written by or plotted by David Laugham, Marjorie Liu, and Greg Pak, with uh, the actual script by David Laugham and the artist. Sorry, the art is done by Andre Arauho. I don't even know how to pronounce that. A R A U J O and uh, Renato Arlem. Um, Renato Arlem, again, is a nice kind of tone to him in terms of the art, but, and so he was doing the part where you're actually on Age of Apocalypse. There's just a lot of stuff in here that didn't really work. Uh, the Dreaming Celestial, the, uh, the, the Weird Exiles team. I, I, I don't even know why this storyline is really happening. Let's take the three lowest selling X-Men books and do a crossover between them. Like, if I wasn't already reading these, why, why am I going to read the rest? Like, they're all on the bottom rung of the X universe in terms of people reading them. The story I didn't really find all that interesting and engaging. I don't really care uh, about these characters. Um, the Dreaming Celestial looks dumb. Uh, the, the threat seems so basic. And again, I don't think they've done a good job really explaining what is really going on here because you have like alternate reality versions of characters you've had the prime version of the characters and you have age of apocalypse characters and there's no real clean concise reason for what the hell is actually happening um this just kind of feels like a wasted storyline and a waste of my time um i gave it about a six uh originally i was trending a little bit higher six and a half i'm like you know what? i didn't enjoy this so i gave it a just a regular six uh, next up is Age of Ultron number four. I cannot believe we're forty percent done this storyline, and I still feel like we're in the first maybe first issue or two is where we actually feel like we are. Uh, it's written by Brian Michael Bendis, artwork by Brian Hitch. Um, I, as I've said before in the podcast, not a huge fan of the coloring on this book either. Um, I feel like it was a little bit better in this book, but still not that great. And like the the shot on the cover uh, of Luke Cage kind of uh, acting out. Is that really supposed to be his hair? Like, it looks like they just didn't color in his hair. It doesn't... There's no texture. It's just black... Black color on his on his head. And I know that doesn't really seem like it makes a lot of sense. But usually, they kind of make hair have some sort of texture of some kind. It's just black. And there's nothing on it. It looks like someone... Uh, instead of having, like, a white eraser, they took, like, a black black marker and just went zip. And that was it. That's not detail. Um, this is not Paul Mount's best coloring job by any means. Uh, and I guess here we get the, the kind of the idea that it's secretly um, Ultron's kind of acting out in through the through the uh, he's acting from the future into the past and going through Vision, which is kind of an interesting concept. But then there's just a lot of stuff in here that I didn't like and didn't enjoy. Uh, it's not like the Vision has had a great time of it anyway, and he's he's damaged again. You have the Ultron robot suddenly able to blast through She-Hulk's head and kill her. That I didn't think was necessary. Um, 
I just a lot of this book just doesn't feel necessary. You have the Luke Cage is fighting against the Ultron robots. I didn't really care much for that. Um, the uh, the ongoing kind of saga of Moon Knight and Black Widow didn't care much for that. This whole exodus to Savage Land again. Um, Bendis just loves the Savage Land when it comes to his big events. Um, Kazar kind of being involved. That's kind of cool, but um, I'm just not a big fan. Where it just takes the, it, it feels like you have all this build up. Like there was an entire issue where at the end of one issue we saw Captain America slumped on the ground. In the next issue, by the end of the issue, Captain America stood up. I mean, so basically five minutes had occurred, and the major progression was he stood up. Whereas here, finally stuff is happening, but we're just fast forwarding through that stuff and getting into the Savage Land. So they were in New York, now they're in the Savage Land, but there's not a, an actual reason for like. How how were they able to actually get all the way there? I actually would have liked to see part of that journey. Instead, we don't get to see that, but we got to spend the first two issues just taking our time and seeing Captain America slowly stand up and decide, no, we're going to put together a plan. Um, I'm not enjoying this that much as an event. Uh, Avengers versus X-Men, for all of its problems... Um, at least they gave you a lot more action, intrigue, things were happening, and then it shifted on its axis when uh, the Phoenix Five happened. Uh, whereas this just feels relatively repetitive and boring, at least in the first few issues. Maybe it'll turn out to be something better, but I, I do not have a lot of high hopes for this book uh, at all. Uh, I gave it uh, 7 out of 10 only because I can't refute the fact that the artwork does look nice, but I, although I do think the colors are mismatched. I, I feel like my enjoyment level was below a seven, but the, um, from the technical aspects of the book, it's hard to 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 rate it any lower. I just didn't. But if it, it was just pure enjoyment and not based on like how technically it was the artwork and the uh, story, then I probably would have ranked it a little bit lower. Because I and I just found myself kind of not caring, um, which is not good when it's a big event. So I gave it a seven. Next up is All New X Men number ten. Uh, this was a really, really good book. I mean, and it has been since pretty much since the beginning. Uh, you should look forward to um, downloading episode 70 of Comic Shenanigans, which will be coming out, I believe, on the 17th of April. Uh, we'll be looking at doing a Marvel Now kind of analysis uh, with my brother-in-law, Paul Scores, and we'll be going through a lot of the books that came out as part of the Marvel Now initiative, one of them being All New X-Men, and he's really enjoying that book, and so am I. So, uh, spoiler alert for that episode... Um, it's Brian Michael Bendis kind of having a good time with the X universe. It's a little slower than some of the issues have been. Uh, Eminem's on artwork again. Um, the opening is alarming and kind of weird at first, but then you realize it's because uh, it looks like the original X Men are basically almost murdering people and committing a bank heist, but it's really Sabretooth, Mystique, and Lady Mastermind. That part's kind of cool. I like the idea that Cyclops brings his, uh, his uncanny X-Men to the X-Mansion to basically try and recruit. I like that, once again, we have Cyclops not being afraid to stand up to people and just talk and not fight anyone and try to get people along to his side. That part's cool. The part about the issue that really bothered me was the last page. You have this idea that someone is going to defect from the um, from the from the you know, uh, the Jean Grey school and go with Cyclops and his uncanny X-Men. We don't know who that is because the last page... And this, this is what really ticked me off. I understand cliffhangers in comics. So I, what I would have expected would have been, you know, um, he's like, who's going to come with me? And someone says, I accept. And we see who that is. And we're like, oh, my God, why is that person doing that? Like, 
It reminds me of, I believe, Ultimate X-Men number four or three, when Cyclops defected from the X-Men and went to join Magneto and his Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. That was really like, whoa, what's going on? And really set that book apart in terms of having a different tone and not just being a carbon copy of the original um, X-Men universe. This, however, felt a lot more cheeky and cheap because we have... Uh, someone says that they're going to accept this offer, they're going to leave. You see, I believe, Wolverine and Kitty Pryde turn around like, like, you? Like, why would you do this? We don't see who it is. It just feels very schlocky, very like, oh, ho, ho, who's going to defect? Just show me on the last page. That's cliffhanger enough. You don't need to give an extra cliffhanger that we don't even get to see who it is. Um, so that that bothered me. But, I mean, for the rest of the issue, extremely good. I like seeing how the younger X-Men kind of interact. Uh, I really like uh, young Cyclops and what he has to say. Um, I just like having them around as, as characters in general. I mean, they really do add a whole new level uh, to the X-Men, X-Men universe, getting to see it through the younger X-Men's eyes. These characters who you know, basically are from the 1963 version of the characters and now seeing what's become of them in the future and the dark paths they've gone down. Uh, so I gave this an 8.5 out of 10. Next up is Animal Man number 19. Uh, now, usually I read in tandem Animal Man and Swamp Thing. This time I actually didn't read Swamp Thing 19. I read the first like page or two, and I was like, eh, I'll get to this. And then I just never did. I never really was that interested in it. Uh, Animal Man 19, however, is a great um, kind of uh, closing the book on a chapter of Buddy Baker's life uh, because you have the last... You know, a little while with, with Rot World and everything. And this is kind of the the calm issue where... Well, not really that calm, to be honest. But uh, he's dealing with uh, his son dying last issue. He's burying his son. His you know his, his wife and his, um, his daughter have survived. But now him and his wife are estranged. Uh, like, deeply estranged. And he's kind of left alone. And he doesn't want to really be Animal Man anymore. He doesn't want to have this connection with the Red. He doesn't want his daughter to be connected or be this champion of the Red either. He wants um, basically the Red to basically leave his family alone and never bother them again. And he has kind of the balls to go to the Red and basically say this. And that really pisses them off. I mean, basically sever part of his connection to the Red. He still has his abilities, but he no longer has this deep connection uh, to basically what his fueled his, his abilities and his powers and it's the idea that I mean he's already pretty much alone because he is um, he's estranged from his his wife and uh, and his daughter not so much his daughter but more his wife who's kind of keeping his daughter from him a little bit and he's already has a sense of loneliness and being set apart and now he doesn't even have that connection to the red which is part of what defined him uh, so it's kind of I really enjoyed it and thought it was fascinating um, as an issue, Steve Pug, or Pug, I don't know how to pronounce it, P-E, sorry, P-U-G-H, does a phenomenal job in the artwork. It's extremely um, emotive in terms of making you feel just how desperate and lonely Animal Man is in this juncture in his career. And Jeff Lemire really kind of nails um, the writing in here. And he re- it does make you extremely sad. Like, this is a man grieving. He's a father who's lost his son. And, like, he, after everything that happened during Rot World, he tried so hard to be able to go back in time and save his family, and he was able to save his daughter and his wife, but he couldn't save his son, and it's it's heartbreaking, and it's extremely well-written, and 
issues even just called the funeral and uh yeah the artwork is just fantastic I'm, i haven't always been a huge fan of the artwork in this book um but here it was just so perfect um and just extremely well done i really liked it all the way through uh, i actually gave this a 9 out of 10 which i was a little surprised myself uh next up is batwing number 19 this is a weird book it's not by fabian decisa it's by instead um uh jimmy palmiotti and justin gray artwork by pensica and ferrera um it so it's got the, it the gateful cover is uh hero falls and a night rises. So basically, we have a new Batwing or Batwing 2.0. Um, I'm kind of, not, I'm not dismayed, but I'm, it's almost a little disappointing because Batwing was a different concept, and the idea that he was based out of Africa as part of the Batman Inc. Uh, organization instead of out of Gotham was kind of interesting and cool. And now here they, it's like they just didn't want to deal with that anymore, so they quickly shuttle that uh, that whole idea. And they throw it away. And uh, instead, of that, now they're going to have this new Batwing, who is Lucius Fox's son, Luke Fox, which I thought was ridiculous. Um, first of all, the first half of the issue is kind of a, a slap in the face to people who really were enjoying this book, and they very easily and quickly try to dispatch the character and have it be done, have him give up his suit and give it back to Bruce Wayne. Batman basically say thanks, but... Uh, you know, maybe someday uh, if I ever want to do this again, I'll give you a call. But basically, uh, I'm done being Batwing. And so instead, Batman, there's, and the artwork here really bothers me. There's shots of, of Bruce Wayne with like a giant smile on his face, like a big grin. Like, that's not any version of Bruce Wayne I've ever seen, except for maybe Adam West. But I mean, Batman doesn't smile like that at all. Um, the idea that Lucius Fox is helping to build this suit and he's going to give it to Lucius Fox's son, and the idea that Luke, that Luke Fox just wanted to get Batman's attention all this time, I I don't care for this. I don't I don't see the point. I don't like we we really need another Bat related character in Gotham City. Like that's not in any way necessary. There are so many. There is Red Hood. Uh, Robin's dead, so he's not around. But um, there's Red Hood. There's Batgirl. There's Nightwing. Um, there's Batwoman, there's Batman. Do you really need Batwing as well? Uh, it's just not unnecessary. I'm not really all that excited about seeing what happens there. Uh, and again, the artwork in this issue isn't necessarily all that bad, except for the shots of Batman smiling, and not just once, but a few times. It really doesn't fit. Um, it's kind of like, now this is, again, a spoiler for an upcoming episode. Episode 68, we, look, we do a Book of the Month Club episode, and at one point... Uh, one of the people on our panel makes reference to uh, Greg Capullo's artwork on Batman at times, making it look like Bruce Wayne is fairly effeminate. It's kind of what made me think of that when I was reading this issue. Um, I gave it a six and a half. I was thinking higher originally, but it's some of it's just not good, or it's really sla- kind of slapdash and, and not given that much thought in terms of putting it all together. You know, in, in terms of further reflection, I'm actually going to give this a six. I didn't like it. Um, next up is uh, Detective Comics 19. This is an extremely big issue. Uh, it's kind of cheeky. They have this thing on the cover, you know, what is the 900? Well, really what it means is that this is actually, if they had, hadn't renumbered it, this would have been Bat, uh, Detective Comics number 900. Instead, it's number 19. Not quite as impressive. Uh, it's an 80-page spectacular. Um, it's actually fairly good. Uh, I wasn't sure... If I would really enjoy it all that much, because sometimes they throw together these giant um, collections, and they don't—they're not 
there's not a theme or some of the stories just feel kind of like kind of half-assed just because they wanted the extra page count so they could charge some extra money as it is it's an extremely expensive book um the lead story is the 900 written by jason sorry john layman artwork by jason Fabach, who actually really enjoy on this book and have for a while you have uh, a man bat um backup which is called man bat in birth of a family also by written by layman uh, artwork by andy clark you have mr combustible in bird watching also by layman with pencils by henrik johnson you have a, a bane story in war council by uh James Tanian the Fourth and artwork by uh, Mikhail Janon, and then you have Gotham's Finest and uh, Through a Blue Lens by again John Layman and Jason Masters. Uh, then there's a lot of pinups as well. Uh, the, the core story, it's interesting, but I, I, I found it frustrating because again the Bat franchise didn't really get reset in the same way as as everything else in the DCU. However, here uh, Kirk Langstrom Man Bat. Uh, is never met Batman before and has never been Man Bat until this point. Um, but you do have the old Man Bat assassins still exist, so that part still happened. And the whole idea of Talia using the uh, Langstrom uh, serum to create Man Bat assassins still happened. But Man Bat himself, being a character that Batman's ever fought or known, isn't. So it's very frustrating on. Like, they, they kind of make it as if most things happen, but some things didn't happen. It's kind of make up your mind, you see. Like, you're not really sure what's going on, and you're not making it any easier for your readers half the time. Because John Lehman's actually writing these stories, thankfully there is um, a common thorough line throughout. I mean, the st- uh, you have more Emperor Penguin stuff going on. Again, pe- the real Penguin's in jail, but now there's the new Emperor Penguin, who has taken over his spot. And as I say that, I realize how dumb that looks, or seems. Uh, my wife is in the room as I record this podcast, and she is incredulous. First of all, there's actually a character named Mambat, and now she's giggling because there's a character named Emperor Penguin. And not, not like that's an upgraded version of the regular Penguin, but it's a different character. Aren't Emperor Penguins the smaller ones? Emperor Penguins, I think they're smaller. Or no, they're bigger, aren't they? Are they bigger? I honestly don't I'm know. Ask Morgan okay. I don't even know if people can, can quite hear you. It's like you're on the podcast, but you're not. I'm not. <laughs> you're not. Um, so this actually is a, a good issue. I, I, this is a book where it, I don't think it started off that great, Detective Comics, but it is really, under layman, um, it's really become a really interesting and engaging book. Um, where I didn't like at first, but then I really started to enjoy, was the Bane story here. First of all, Bane doesn't feel like... he. Excuse me, like he's ever broken Batman. That's one kind of strike against him. However, and he looks a little bit more like the Bane that was in the Arkham video games, which I don't like. Um, but I love the idea that he's up against the Court of Owls himself. And that the Court of Owls is like, you can't come here. And you can't mess with Batman. This is our city. And that's actually a great idea. And it sets up his eventual appearances, apparently at some point, uh, in the uh, Talon book. So that's actually, I mean, I was like, why are we reading a, a Bane story? And then you had the part with him in the Court of Owls, but that's really cool. And then it's leading up to him eventually showing up in uh, in Talon, which is actually a really cool concept as well. That's a book where I wasn't sure if I'd enjoy it, but it's been really solid. So um, there's a lot of bang for your buck in this issue of Detective Comics. Again, it's not really issue 900, but it should be. Um, 
it's one of the better anniversary style packages I've seen because uh, usually as I said you have a lot of different writers but some of the stories don't end up feeling like they really fit into current continuity or they're not as important but here you have the ongoing writer writing most of the stories and that really um, was part of what made this such a great package so I ended up giving it a, an, um, I, I guess yeah, an 8.5 out of 10 It's not all the stories are, are made equal but there's a lot of diversity and I'm interested to see what happens with Man Bad in the future especially with his wife who basically takes the serum as well so she is going to be like a like a, a a woman bat? I don't I don't know. Um, I mean, there's a bat woman. God knows. So I mean, it makes sense to have a woman bat now. Uh, next up is Earth Two, number eleven. Really enjoying this book right from the beginning. Like once, ever since this book started, I was a huge fan. I really liked uh, where it really burst on the scene. Had a great kind of uh, feel to it that felt very different than the modern DCU and the New Fifty Two. Um, that continues to be the case. Part of it is that it. It's there's more magic it feels I mean maybe that's not fair because I haven't really been reading Justice League Dark but um, no, there's a lot more magic to be found in this universe and I really like that uh, James Robinson wrote it artwork by uh, Nicholas Scott uh, fantastic stuff I mean and the colorist really has done a great job on this book as well uh, you have the issue basically doesn't really take place anywhere outside of Naboo's realm actually no scratch that there is a brief uh, portion on Earth with um, Steppenwolf and Wonder Woman's daughter Fury, uh, but most of it is is on the uh, like n- is not on Earth. It's in this other plane, and you have uh, uh, Flash and uh, Khalid going through uh, to look for the uh, the Helmet of Fate, and uh, finally Khalid ends up realizing like he's meant to become Fate, and uh, finally Doctor Fate is born in this in this new DCU or at least the Earth 2 version, uh, which I really liked. I also like getting a little bit to... getting to know more about um, Flash's mother, although at times I think Nicholas Scott didn't illustrate her as being... like, I know he's like a kid, or he's in his late teens, I think he's like 18 or something. So, I mean, theoretically, yeah, she could she could be only like 34 or 36. But, like, they draw her like she's in her 20s, and that felt a little off-putting, um, you know, that... That especially that they're make, trying to make her as attractive as they are. There's a, a real throwaway panel here, which is basically thrown away on the cover as well, in the WTF cover. You have the idea that uh, uh, Big Barda and Mr. Miracle are on the uh, in, on Earth 2. But that's it. And then we have a, gr- a brief shot of them, that they're in Gotham City, and then nothing else. So I didn't like that it was on the cover, because it's like, whoa, guess what? These characters are here. And but they're only on like one page, and it's almost identical to the image that's on the cover. So it's, it just felt like a waste. Um, but the issue in itself was a great setup to the next uh, the the all out magic war coming up next issue, and I can't wait to see that happen. I give it a nine out of ten. Very solid, great book. It continues to be a highlight of DC's portfolio. Uh, next up is Green Lantern nineteen. Uh, is this storyline not over yet? Um, I feel like I have read this Wrath of the First Lantern storyline over and over again. Um, this is part nine. I think we've had six parts of the story, by my count, have been pretty much the identical story. Um, the uh, First Lantern messes with character X, making them relive what their world, what their life could have been if uh, X had happened instead of X. And now... 
then that character tries to rebel and fight and fight against uh, uh, the First Lantern, and the First Lantern beats X. That's basically six different issues. It's always been a different character, but it felt like the exact same story. It's so boring, and I can't believe that this is the this is the note that Jeff Johns is going out on. When he started with Green Lantern Rebirth, uh, I guess eight years ago, it was just so fresh and exciting. And uh, now I'm just like I'm ready for him to be off Green Lantern. I'm ready to stop reading the the series entirely. Like I just don't care anymore. And there was a, there was years in the meantime. Like I was when Sinestro Corps War happened. I thought like this is the best. This is the best the Green Lantern could ever be. It was so thrilling and exciting. Blackest Night happened. I wasn't a huge fan with how it ended up playing out, but I was excited about the build up to it. And then with this, I'm just like, I don't care, and I'm okay with him going. Like, I'm not sad that Jeff Jones, Jeff Johns is leaving the book, or that any, or that every book in the line is being relaunched or given a new creative team. Uh, come issue 21, I'm just ready for it to be over already. Um, I guess this issue has a little bit more plot development than than happens in most of them, uh, because you have how. Jumping into the into the darkness to I guess try and uh, take uh, Black Hand's ring, and then you also have Sinestro surviving the destruction of Korrigar, which is a big move. Um, I'm not unsure if it'll remain that way. Uh, and you have uh, him basically, I guess his Korrigar gets destroyed, except for his old Sinestro um, lantern, and maybe he'll have to use it again and not be a Green Lantern in the big ending which will be in Green Lantern number 20, which is next month. Uh, I gave the issue a six and a half, uh, trending towards a seven. I just, I don't care for the story, but it looks really good. I guess that accounts for something. Uh, maybe, no, maybe it is more of a six and a half. I'm waffling all over the place today. I apologize. Uh, next up is an Indestructible Hulk number six. This is a interesting book. <laughs> um... If it wasn't for the artwork, it would have been an 8. Because the artwork, it's more of a 7. The art is by Walter Simonson, a legendary figure in the field. Uh, Absolutely, he's an amazing illustrator. He was an amazing illustrator. In the 1980s, he was fantastic. Um, Even in the early 90s, he wasn't bad either. He... His style does not fit what this book is. Part of it's that Lionel Francis Yu had a great handle on what Mark Wade was doing with this book, and it was exciting and it felt fresh, and it, there was um, a lot of energy in the panels, even at times when the action was a little muddied. Whereas here, uh, the Walter Simonson's artwork, the line work is just really exaggerated these days. Uh, although his his classic Thor looks brilliant um, because that's what Walter Simonson is probably most fondly well known for is his legendary um, reshaping of the Thor mythology in a, in a huge way that I don't think anyone else has ever done nearly as well. So I liked seeing that, but everyone, everyone else didn't quite look themselves. Hulk didn't really feel right either, uh, and he looked even more ridiculous in his like weird armored suit than he normally does. I like the, the premise of the story, though, was kind of cool. Um, with, uh, Hulk trying to uh, heft Molnir, uh, and he appears to do it here, but uh, who knows if it's actually the real Molnir? Because I mean, we're seeing the original version of Thor here, which obviously isn't correct uh, because Thor doesn't look like that anymore. Um, but it's well written; it's just not the best illustrations. Uh, I gave it a seven out of ten. Next up, speaking of Hulk, uh, we had Red She-Hulk and. Once again, like I am really adoring this book. Uh, I did not, I, and I say this every month, but I just I'm always incredulous because I expected to not enjoy Red She Hulk at all. 
Uh, I just don't think the character needed to exist. I wasn't really sure if, what it was going to be like, and it was kind of tying into the whole Marvel Now initiative, and I was like, okay, I'll give it a shot. And it's been fantastic. And uh, Jeff Parker has really got a, a good sense of what he wants to do with the character. Um, and I've really liked the artwork as well by uh, Carlo Pagulan and Wellington Alves. Uh, it's, I mean, the cover is actually probably not the greatest uh, representation of what it's about, but um, you have Red She-Hulk and a, mach- a Machine Man beneath the Earth in Subterranea, and they come across a Mole Man's son, uh, which is kind of fun as well to see what he thinks of Red She-Hulk and he kind of likes her and he also had this idea that like at some point um, Mole Man had sex with a mole monster and created uh, his this weird deviant son um, you also have the reemergence of the whole the whole thing about Tesla uh, and I, I and I really love that stuff because that harkens back to the S.H.I.E.L.D. miniseries by Hickman that I really loved um and then at the end here, you have like, it looks like they they end up getting uh, jumped into the future somehow. I love the coloring on She-Hulk uh, and also on uh, Aaron Stack. He looks amazing in his kind of Tron-inspired outfit, but he looks just really good. The story is very enjoyable. The artwork's great. You can't really go wrong. And um, the trade of the first, I think, six issues of uh, the rebranded Red She-Hulk book just came out uh this past week and i i really do recommend picking it up it's a lot of fun and this is what i like about marvel's trade pro, uh, paperback program you can read it and you'll have missed two issues there on the shelves one that just came out when they came out last month so you can easily start picking up the book in singles whereas with dc uh the trade paperback of court of owls just came out which is uh issues one to seven of batman yet this month we got issue 19 of batman so they're already t- like a year out of date. Um, whereas with Marvel, you're only two months out and you can easily jump in. That's what I don't understand about DC's Chay uh, Paperback program. It's just the whole point should be. I mean, I, sometimes Marvel can be too aggressive with it, but the point of, the, of any trade Paperback program should be that you can pick up a trade and then jump into the issues because you can get caught up. You can never do that with DC, ever. Um, so it's really unfortunate that they don't foster more of a a helpful trade paperback program. I understand they don't want people to just buy trades. They want people to buy singles, but you're not helping yourself um, because people, once they're, you know, 16 issues behind or whatever, that might be just three trades. That's relatively easy to pick up as opposed to tracking down 16 issues. But if, I mean, they're just not making it any easier on themselves. So I gave uh, Red She-Hulk number 64 uh, an 8 out of 10. Uh, next up is Superior Spider-Man number 7. Uh, so we're there's this is we got about five books left in uh, in the episode. Um, Superior Spider-Man, really really good stuff. Um, I'm really enjoying the book for the most part. I mean, nothing's really wrong with what Dan Slott's decided to do. I'm a little worried on how low they're going to go with Spider-Man in terms of kind of ruining his life because of what Doc Ock is doing in Spider-Man's body. Here we have the first real glimpse of maybe. Spider-Man can really control more than we realized in terms of his astral form or the Ghost Parker version. Um, that he's actually able to kind of control Peter Parker's hand while Doc Ock is sleeping. So that that that's a big move. Um, you also get the reemergence of the villain Cardiac, which I liked as well. And you have again a lot of Spider-Man being extremely brutal and unnecessarily uh, just beating up Cardiac. I mean, I know that he may not like the a 90s villain like that, but he nearly kills the guy. Um, and then you have Peter kind of 
working against the scenes to stop him from from doing so. And then you have Spider-Man being summoned by the Avengers and basically saying, you know, what what are you doing? You're beating up your villains uh, to, to you know to an inch of their lives. You killed this guy in a massacre. You beat up a cardiac. You know what's what's really wrong with you? And Spider-Man's like, you know what? Screw this. You know, I we're done. I'm out of here. And um, uh, Captain America's like, you know, you're getting a physical. You know, we got to make sure everything's all right. And Cap um, kind of gets shoved aside by Spider-Man, and he puts his hand on his shoulder and says to Spider-Man, "That wasn't a request." And Spider-Man just says, "Get your hand off, you flag-waving fool!" And then grabs, uh, you know, Captain America and throws him on the ground. That's a big move, um, and so it's setting up for the next issue. You have A versus uh, Avengers versus Superior Spider-Man, which should be interesting. So uh, they're definitely building to a point. Dan Slott has said that issue number nine. So this is issue seven. Issue number nine is a huge turning point for Superior Spider-Man. I'm interested to see what that is. I mean, again. They probably can't do this more than another year, which is still 24 issues. But, I mean, in a year, Amazing Spider-Man 2 is going to come out. We're not going to have Superior Spider-Man anymore. There's just no way. Um, unless I'm, unless they you know, decide to, to maybe make a flip and instead have um, Doc Ock in Spider-Man's mind. But I, but I don't know if they would bother at this point. And plus, uh, I think it's July that's going to be the month of Superior Spider-Man, where... They have Superior Spider-Man itself, they have the Superior Six, they have uh, Superior Spider-Man Team-Up. It's the big month for Superior Spider-Man. Next up, we have uh, Thanos Rising, number one. I was excited about this because I didn't really know what it was. Uh, All I knew was it was a new Thanos book, and it was going to be written by Jason Aaron, which he's written a lot of good stuff. Artwork by uh, Simone Bianchi, uh, and it was awful. Uh, absolutely atrocious. The artwork isn't bad. That's the only reason I'm going to give it a five. The story is so awful. Um, you have a badass character like Thanos that everyone in comics thinks is, you know, one one of the the biggest badasses in the Marvel universe. He's, you know, he's uh, a huge Avengers and cosmic villain. He, with the Infinity Gauntlet, he has you know destroyed the universe and just you know killed almost everyone before in in pursuit of. Um, the love and affection of his uh, his beloved, which is the actual personification of death itself, and yet they go back to his origin, and instead of showing how he's awesome, we have him as a weird teenager who's uh, kind of weak and frail, and it's just like, can you possibly have come up with a better, sorry, a worse idea for Thanos? Like, the, Thanos isn't Spider-Man, he's not any other character, he's a force of nature, and he's and he's fascinating when written well. And this is awful. This is such a bad book. I cannot recommend enough that you pass and say no. I don't want to read this. Uh, read the upcoming uh, Jonathan Hickman written Infinity, uh, which will focus on Thanos. Read that. That would be good. That I have no problem with recommending. That it hasn't even come out yet, and I know it's going to be better than this issue. Um, this is just absolutely awful. Uh, it's a waste of time. Uh, it's a waste. Of, I, I'm not a huge fan of Bianchi's artwork, but it's a waste of his talents. Um, and I feel like that's been happening to him a lot. I mean, the last thing Bianchi did was um, uh, I forget what it's called. I think it was the Sabretooth in Reborn or whatever. And it was that arc uh, in uh, that Jeff Loeb wrote in Wolverine, which was just stupid. <laughs> it was really horrendous. But the art was, you know, way too good for it. And that's what I feel about this. Thanos Rising number one is 
the kind of trash. And uh, it's not enjoyable. I don't know what Jason Aaron was thinking. I don't know what Marvel Editorial was thinking. This was just a mistake. Um, maybe the rest of the series will be good, but this first issue set the bar so low that I guess, you know, issue two can only be better. I can't imagine it could be worse than this. Uh, next, next up is Venom number 33. This book has lost its way. I don't really care as much. I mean, um, it's, it's, you know, I still, I'm still picking it up and cause I, I really enjoyed the first maybe two years, but really that's cause I liked Rick Remender and I liked his take on the book and I, I want to like Colin Bunn. Uh, but something about the book doesn't quite jive for me. I don't know what it is. Like, it's got elements I really like. I like the idea that Eddie Brock is in a new place, but he doesn't really have a supporting cast yet, which is part of the problem. He's just kind of functioning uh, alone in uh, in Philadelphia, and he's you know he's there for a good reason. And you have talks and hunting him, and it has elements that are good. And I like the idea that you have uh, Flash not wanting to use you know the mechanical. Uh, legs that were built for him by like Beast, etc. And he he's just kind of happy to, you know, not have that kind of crutch. I mean, he already gets to kind of have it when he's Venom anyway, so uh, this way he's just kind of being able to kind of live the life he's supposed to have. I like the idea that he's, he's uh, going into Alcoholics Anonymous, and he is an alcoholic, but really what he's talking about is he's using the symbiote. And using the alien inside him instead of being happy with who he is and being a little bit addicted to the rush of being Venom sometimes. So it's got some really interesting ideas. But then you also just have a lot of fluff. And the artwork by Shalvi is not doing many favors. Uh, the the work on Toxin, I don't really like the uh, the visual look. And I don't I don't even understand Eddie Brock as a character anymore. Like, they can't decide what to do with him. They had him be anti-Venom. And then he was cured of that, and he was just Eddie Brock, and he was hunting symbiotes. A little crazy, but okay. And then he becomes Toxin, and then he's still kind of hunting symbiotes, but more just hunting Venom. And he, I, I just feel like Eddie Brock isn't a character anymore. He's just this weird cipher for whatever anyone wants to do with a character named Eddie Brock. But it doesn't actually have any real personality. Now, you could say, in his original appearances, he didn't have much of one either. And... That's partially true, but I'd like to think that we've evolved since the late 80s, early 90s, when Venom first arrived, but apparently that's not the case, which is unfortunate. Um, I gave the issue a 7 out of 10. It's not awful. I mean, sorry, a 6.5, I apologize. Um, It had some good moments, but the artwork wasn't quite living up to those, and those moments weren't consistent enough. Uh, Next up is Winter Soldier number 17. I'm still filling out this book because I really enjoyed Ed Brubaker's run on Winter Soldier. This is something completely different. It does, like, the writing's different. The artwork is of a totally different grade. Uh, Latour wrote it with artwork by Klein. Um, You know, I actually came around a little bit more to the artwork in this issue, uh, especially the flashback sequences, uh, which was kind of interesting in in terms of the visual tone. Uh, the, the weird floating Nick Fury AI head was kind of an odd choice. Um, but overall, I, mean, I think the story definitely picked up a bit here, as opposed to where it had been in the last issue. Um, interesting to see what the resolution of this whole thing will be. I gave it a 6.5 out of 10, and which apparently I gave a lot of books this month, or this week, sorry. And the last book we're going to take a look at is World's Finest number 11. Uh, this is uh, a frustrating book. If I've ever seen one before, uh, the book is very of two minds. It's very—I uh, can't think of the word for some reason—and I had problems yesterday with the same thing. 
but it's just it's one thing and then it's the other and it's very uh, I can't think of the word it's written by Paul Levitz artwork by Ken Lashley and Barry Kitson Barry Kitson definitely has the better artwork in this book because uh, I just don't like Ken Lashley's uh, work the inks are too heavy it's 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 just not oh it's not Kitson first of all Kitson's stuff it does a disservice to Lashley because it makes me realize this isn't great art at all <laughs> um, we still don't really know what's going on with Mr. Terrific Again, the uh, the WTF cover didn't really make a lot of sense. Um, the artwork on, on Karen and Helena doesn't really work half the time. I don't. This just issue just felt very empty. It and uh, yeah, and Desaad's here, so it's not really uh, Mr. Terrific, but Desaad instead. So that, I guess that does harken back to the cover, but it feels like a very small part of the issue. Uh, and it's not even the Desaad that I would say is more instantly recognizable. So I was like, who is this? Is this Dr. Destiny or something? Oh, oh, it's Desaad. Didn't know that. You'd have to, without telling me that in the in the narration box or, or having him say, I'm Desaad, uh, I would have no idea of knowing who this was. Um, didn't much care for it. I'm surprised this book hasn't been canceled. Uh, six and a half out of ten. So that's every book I actually read this week. Uh, the, the, the short list of issues I didn't get to. Dark Tower, Gunslinger, Gunslinger Evil Ground, number one. I haven't read the last few miniseries. Uh, even even when I was still buying them, uh, I got to a point where I just hadn't really been reading them either. Uh, Deadpool number seven. I'd heard about it. I flipped through it. It has that cool cover where it's uh, the classic Iron Man demon in a bottle, but it's, it's Deadpool on the other side of the mirror. Um, I don't know what the point of this was, which maybe was kind of the point that it was just kind of a weird, silly issue with Deadpool. Um, and it's they they bill it like an inventory story, but it's not an inventory story. Uh, I kind of like that, but at the same time, what was really the point of this story at all? It's obviously trying to harken back to um, the Joe Kelly run in Deadpool when they had Deadpool go back in time and basically relive portions of an Amazing Spider-Man issue from the '60s. Which is which is really clever and, and, and cool. This just feels like we're doing this in a certain style. It's set around uh, the original Demon in a Bottle, but that's it. And I don't know if that was really necessary. Um, Dial H number eleven. I haven't read any of this series. Green Arrow nineteen. Uh, I have heard that uh, the book is getting some ground. Uh, it's it's finding its feet, but I just don't care because they've already had five different starts in the last nineteen issues of trying to find a new continuity and a new. A new kind of direction, and then instantly change in Marvel. Uh, sorry, DC editorial said, "Well, well, you know, we changed our mind." Um, Phantom Stranger number seven. I don't think I've read an issue since issue two, and I don't really care much to do so. I know that during Trinity War, I probably will have to read one of these just to understand what's going on during Trinity War. But that's the only reason I'm even keeping it even anywhere on my radar. Uh, Stormwatch nineteen, a book I just never really followed. Although I am interested in picking up the back issues at some point or picking up the trades because I'm a little interested to see what was kind of going on with Marshall Manhunter when he wasn't on the Justice League of America. Uh, so maybe I'll at some point go back to that. Uh, St- Swamp Thing number 19. Again, I just didn't really have a lot of interest in carrying through with the issue. Uh, at some point I'll read up on it just so that when issue 20 comes up I'll know what's happening. And uh, finally, Ultimate Comics X-Men number 25. Didn't much care for it. So thanks for listening. This has been uh, episode 67, Comic Reviews for the week of April the 3rd. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. Or I guess I was your host, but I still am. 
you can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com for any comments, questions, etc. Uh, you can also like us on Facebook on your uh, iPod or iPad. You can uh, go to comicshenanigans.podbean.com slash mobile and you can actually download the app. Uh, it's unfortunately not on the, it- on the uh, iTunes store. Um, at some point we do hope to have an Android version coming up. Uh, it's still maybe a month or two away from us having that available. Um, additionally, uh, you can also leave feedback on the HC Realms post, uh, that, uh, sorry, thread that we usually post each episode on. Uh, and again, I just want to hear feedback from everyone. What do you like about the show? What do you like about the reviews episodes? What, what could I do better? I'm always trying to make sure that the the show can be more interesting and more engaging for those who are actually taking the time to download the episodes and, and uh, listen to them all. So thanks again for joining me this week, and I will see you next time.